Uh, the rest of us who are remaining in here, you can turn uh, in the bulletin uh, to our passage of scripture just inside that front cover. It's Revelation chapter 19, 6 through 9. You can also turn there in a Bible if you have one. And if you are um, here this morning and you would say that you're someone uh, who has a relationship with the Lord, uh, that, you, that you know God, you, you consider yourself to be a believer, uh, a Christian, that you would say your faith is a priority in your life, um, that's not everyone here, but that, that's many of us here. So if that's you, I want you to sort of um, kind of get up in the airplane and take a 30,000 foot view over how you think about that relationship. Um, how do you think about your relationship with God, sort of on a meta level? Um, at the end of the day, what's it really about for you? Um, maybe you think about your faith as another item on your life's resume. Um, you've got maybe like family on this resume. You have work or school. You have your hobbies, uh, maybe some kind of community involvement. And then you have church and faith. It just sort of like, it kind of fills out um, the picture for you. It rounds things out for you. And, and it can be really tempting to think about our relationship with God this way as like an item on our resume, especially if we live in a, in a context um, where going to church um, is seen as a good thing, where, where Christianity is seen uh, favorably. Um, and for the most part in our context, you know, it's only uh, to our benefit, to, uh, to, for our image, to attend a church or to be a Christian. I know there are exceptions to that, but on the whole, in our particular context, um, it's an advantage, which that can have a lot of advantages to it, the fact that it's a good thing, but it can also be dangerous because our faith um, can just turn into just sort of an item on our resume uh, that sort of rounds out our image in the community. So is that how it functions for you? It's worth thinking about. Um, maybe uh, the, your view of your faith, you, you think about it sort of as this necessary burden in life. Uh, in your more honest moments, um, it just it kind of feels like more rules or more burdens or more stuff you have to either do or not do. That's how you experience your relationship with God. Um, but you feel like you need it. You would say you need it and you even want it. Um, however, the lived-in experience of your faith is it's just kind of more. It's like more to do more rules, more commitments, more stress. Again, you're convinced you need it, but maybe you think about it in the way that you think about like, yeah, like, and I need to eat healthy food. I don't like to eat healthy food, but I know I need to. So I'm going to just kind of like, ugh, I'm going to eat this food on my plate that I don't like. Maybe that's how you think about your faith. It's this necessary burden. You know you need it. You know it's good for you, but you don't love it. What if... Um, rather than being just another item on our resume or some necessary moral burden we all have to carry, um, what if your relationship with God was the most intimate, loving relationship, uh, one that brought you more joy and satisfaction than anything else in life? Uh, we're wrapping up a series today looking at different biblical images of the church. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus' relationship with the church is spoken of in the Bible as an intimate, loving relationship between a groom and a bride. And we're jumping into Revelation chapter 19 uh, to see this. Uh, some context that will be helpful Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ uh, given to John. John's the one that wrote John's Gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the New Testament. 
in, in this setting, he's on this island called Patmos. And Jesus is giving him this prophetic vision of the future. So we're getting a glimpse in the future as we look at this passage. And this passage is going to, come, is going to tell us about this coming celebration of the marriage of the groom, Jesus, and his bride, the church. All right, so with that in mind, let me read for us Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then look over at Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. And and we just um, hold before you this morning that this is what we need most. We need to hear from you. Uh, and, and, and we're thinking about the love relationship that we have with you this morning. And, and our hearts are just so desperate to, to hear and to believe that you love us. And so we pray that by your spirit you would do that during this time. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so three headings this morning that we'll think about this passage. Uh, we're going to look at the celebration, the bride and the groom, and the invitation. First, the celebration. Look again at the beginning of the passage in verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. All right, so John has this vision and he describes the sounds and the words of this vision. Look at the sounds. What are the sounds? They're all, they're all in verse 6. It's the, the voice of a great multitude. Who was that? It, it's the heavenly hosts, the, the angels. It's believers who have died and been redeemed and are surrounding the throne of God in eternal praise. And, and how is the sound of the multitude described? Uh, it, it says the multitude sounded like the roar of many waters and mighty peals of thunder. Okay, so in this great multitude, we don't, we don't know exactly how many uh, there are that are singing, that are crying out. Um, we don't know how loud it is, but it's compared to, wa- to roaring water and to thunder, both of which are really loud. Um, this is a great time of year to do this. Maybe not this weekend in the rain, but when it's drier and sunnier out, go across the border into North Carolina uh, uh, and hike up to Triple Falls. It's, it's an easy hike. It's a short hike and the waterfalls are really beautiful. And you can actually go and stand um, right next to some of these waterfalls up at Triple Falls. Um, and as you're standing next to the waterfalls up there, um, it is so loud that you can barely hear yourself speak. And as long as you stand there, that's how long that thing is going to be roaring in your ear. It just roars and roars and roars. And then think about Thunder. Um, during these spring storms that we get. It is so loud. 
It is so unpredictable. It's startling. No matter how often you have heard thunder, um, it always feels so overwhelmingly powerful and surprising, so much bigger than you, so far out of your control, uh, different from any human-engineered sound that we could produce. And, And this is describing the sound of this great multitude in worship as they celebrate the coming marriage ceremony between Jesus the groom and his bride the church. And the sheer power of this sound, it underscores the importance of the words. What are the words that they're saying? End of verse 6. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. It's talking about the reign of God. Let us rejoice and exult. Give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Okay, to better understand some of the context of these words, we need to know what comes just before our passage. Um, It's another vision that Jesus gave to John. And that vision that comes just before ours, um, the city of Babylon is finally defeated. It's this um, city of Babylon that's also personified as a woman or as a prostitute or harlot. And there are different views as to what this represents. Is it actually Babylon? Is it some other religious group or political power? The text doesn't really tell us. Um, One commentator describes it as representing the lust of godless societies for sensual pleasure and their rejection of all restraint. Um, So that it's representative of evil forces that uh, tempt and, and try to pull God's people away from God into the realm of sensual pleasure and rejecting all restraint on their life. And so don't get too lost on what that might represent... But try to understand the idea behind it. And then think in our passage from this view of heaven. What is being celebrated is the fact that this evil entity has finally been completely crushed. Has been completely dealt with. Um, So this is why the praise of the great multitude is so loud. Because this evil has been defeated. What does that have to do with the love relationship between Jesus and his church? Um, These are the lengths at which he went to secure the relationship between himself and his bride. He overcame and conquered every obstacle in order to have a relationship with his bride, the church. Um, In one of the most recent Dude Perfect videos, uh, that was a hard left turn. Um, They attempt to break the, this is a great video if you haven't seen it yet. Um, They attempt to break the world record for the highest, world's highest um, basketball shot. And they go um, to a a casino in Las Vegas. I forget the name of it. There's this really tall tower uh, at this casino. And um, they set up this uh, this 10-foot portable basketball goal at the bottom. And um, they are 856 feet up in the air to make this world record shot. Half the crew is up in this tower. And they're like strapped in by harnesses kind of hanging out over the ledge. The other half of the crew is down sort of trying to get the basketball goal in just the right uh, spot. And, you know, you would think they just kind of just keep taking shots and eventually, you know, one's going to go in. This is dude perfect, right? They make it look so easy. But you have to watch the video. It's not, it's not easy. There are so many obstacles they had to overcome in order to do this. Uh, the wind was a massive obstacle. Um, they had to um, go up there and try to perform this shot at a certain time of day um, early in the morning because the wind was so bad. You would, they would throw the basketball off 856. 856 feet up in the air and you would watch about halfway down the wind would just take it and it would start going sideways it's the craziest thing the wind was a huge obstacle um the people below there were literally people walking along the strip in las vegas and these basketballs were landing all over the place where they they actually really started to get worried about that 
Um, And then they just had to overcome the sheer perseverance of trying to take shot after shot after shot. Because if you watch this video, you'll see that it was was extremely, uh, it was a lot more difficult than what they expected. It took them four days. Um, After four days of attempts, they make the world's highest basketball shot from 856 feet up in the air. But only after having overcome these real obstacles in order to get there. Um, Do you see that what our passage is trying to tell us is that Jesus, our groom, defeated every obstacle that stood in the way of us being in relationship with him. Um, Our sin that separates us, the evil that tempts us, that woos us, that tries to pull us away from him. We're getting a glimpse in our passage of when these things are fully and finally conquered. All because Jesus loves his bride, the church, and he would do whatever it would take to have her. And these sounds and these words of the great multitude, they're pointing, they're they're, they're raising our eyes to look towards the consummation of this marriage in Revelation 21-2 that we just read in our scripture reading, where it says that I saw this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the celebration that our passage is talking about. Um, Let's zoom in and talk about the bride and the groom. Second heading, the bride and the groom. Well, just so we're clear, who's who? Who's the groom? Jesus is the groom. Uh, Throughout the Bible, he's referred to as the bridegroom, uh, which in our context, we just shortened to groom. Um, And in our passage in particular, he's called the lamb. He's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the ultimate and final sacrifice, which again tells us something about the type of groom that he is. He's the groom who sacrifices everything for his bride. Jesus is the groom. Who's the bride? The bride is the church. God's people who believe, who've given their lives to Jesus, who've centered their hearts around Jesus Christ. When you enter into faith in him, you enter into life with his people, you're a part of the church. And our passage makes note of the bride's attire, which even in our context is really fitting. That's what we do today. We talk about how beautiful the bride is. And it talks about the lovely bride in our passage. Look at how the attire of the bride is described here into verse 7, into verse 8. It says, his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So it describes the bride getting herself ready for this wedding ceremony. And what does she put on? It says she's clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, which is said to be the righteous deeds of the saints. So where does this righteous clothing come from? Look at verse 8 again. It was granted to her. Isaiah 61, our call to worship, talks about um, our groom giving us the righteous robes that we are adorned in. Um, These righteous robes come from the groom. Jesus is the one who gives righteousness to his bride. It's a gift of grace. And any righteousness that we lived out is also a gift of grace from him. It's not earning our way into relationship with Jesus, but it's righteousness that comes from him as a gift. This is the bride and the groom. Let's talk about the love between the bride and the groom. You know, sometimes in dating relationships, um, one person likes the other person more. And, uh, and, and where there's a situation where, where uh, the love is not equal. And uh, that can be a hard thing to navigate if you've ever been in a dating relationship like that, especially if you're the one that likes the other person more. You just feel like you're not getting enough out of them. Or maybe the other person, you feel smothered by them. The love is unequal. If that's uh, the case for a human relationship, it it can make things hard to navigate. Um, What's the love like between Jesus the groom and his bride the church? Is it equal? No, it's not equal. 
Um, In fact, if Jesus didn't love his bride, we would never have loved him in return. Um, John Owen, in his book, Communion with God, he makes a distinction between um, the love that God has for his people and the love that we have for him in return. Listen to what Owen says. He says, God's love descends upon us in bounty and fruitfulness. Our love ascends up to him in duty and thankfulness. He adds to us by his love. We add nothing to him by ours. Our goodness does not extend up to him. Though he requires our love, he is not benefited from it. He goes on to say that the love of God is like himself. Equal, constant, not capable of augmentation. He's saying that it it can't change. God's love, it can't change. It can't diminish. It can't lessen. But then he says our love is like ourselves. Unequal, increasing, waning, growing, declining. He's saying it's all over the place. He says his, like the sun, always the same in its light. Though a cloud may sometimes interpose. And he says ours as the moon has its enlargements and its straightenings. All right, what is John Owen saying? He's saying the love that God has for us is perfect. It does not change. It does not lessen. It's a love unlike anything we've ever experienced. And what is our love like to him in return? It's so imperfect. You know what it's like. It's so imperfect. It's up. It's down. Sometimes our hearts feel like they're overflowing with love for God. Other times it's like we can barely remember he exists. And this has been true throughout human history. This is what sin does to us. It causes us uh, to look other places for love and intimacy. Actually, in the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea compares God's people Israel to an unfaithful spouse. um, Who even though um, we were perfectly loved by our groom, we have run after other lovers. And this really exposes all of us. Um, We were created to be filled with this love and intimacy from God alone. And we're so hungry for it that if we don't find it in God, we will go looking for it in other places. Um, We will go after the false intimacy of images on our phones and computer screens. Trying to get a small taste of what feels like intimacy on our own terms, without the threat of rejection, with complete control over the images on a screen. Or we'll look for a false intimacy in a casual hookup um, that gives perceived intimacy without any sense of commitment. Or even in the context of marriage. uh, Where we can look to the the intimacy between husband and wife to be ultimately fulfilling. But then just to be disappointed that it's not ultimately fulfilling. It's never enough. Um, Regardless of what it is, we will go looking for intimacy to fill this longing inside of us. Uh, So what's the way out from those things? Um, What's the thing that can cure our hearts of this disorder uh, of giving ourselves these false intimacies around us all the time? The only thing that will really transform us to, well, is, a, is a true experience of the love of God in our hearts. Um, to experience the real thing, the love of Jesus for you, his bride. So how do we access it? Um, pastor and author Pete Scazzaro says it this way. He says, cultivating this kind of relationship with God can't be hurried or rushed. This quote is in your discussion questions. Cultivating this kind of relationship with God can't be hurried or rushed. We must slow down and build into our lives a structure and rhythm that make this kind of loving surrender routinely possible. Um, having this kind of relationship with God where we're truly filled with his love, where we know him intimately, um, 
it can't happen in the midst of our busyness. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not unlike nurturing love and intimacy in a human relationship. You can't experience intimacy in a human relationship if you're constantly rushing and not spending time together. You're just missing each other. Um, never really slowing down to be together. Um, you can't just flip a switch in that human relationship and have heartfelt intimacy. You have to build in the pattern of slowing down, of creating space, of, of whatever it is, date nights, of unhurried time together. And uh, you have to regularly delight in one another, uh, talk to each other. That builds human intimacy over time. It sort of compounds on itself. That's the same is true between us and God. Without slowing down and delighting in God, of basking in his delight of us, um, of personal heartfelt prayer, of talking to him, um, without that we're going to miss this intimacy with him. And we're going to keep seeking false intimacies in ways that are ultimately self-destructive. And you can imagine how uh, this transforms our relationship with the Lord from being simply an item on our resume or of like a necessary burden in our lives. Uh, You know, imagine treating a marriage that way as an item on a resume or a necessary restraint on your life. That's not love and intimacy. Um, We have access in Christ our groom to something deeply intimate and deeply loving, unlike what we've experienced. So we've seen the celebration, we've seen the bride and the groom. Um, Look at how our passage ends. It ends with an invitation. Look at verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, so two questions about that. Um, What is our role in the ceremony that we're being invited into? And then how do we get invited? So what's our role in the ceremony that we're being invited into? Um, my sister-in-law, Aaron's younger sister, is getting married this coming fall. And uh, she asked Aaron to serve as the, the matron of honor. And our, uh, our daughters are all serving um, in certain roles in the wedding. And um, when Aaron's sister asked Aaron and my daughters to, to, uh, to play a role, play these roles in her wedding, she didn't just ask, but instead she mailed these beautiful gifts uh, to us and to, the, to everyone. And they're just beautifully printed cardstock and these nice glass tumblers with ribbons and bows. It's just a wonderfully prepared package. And, and, and within that, it was sort of, will you be my matron of honor? Will you, know, will you be in these roles at my wedding? Uh, which is not uncommon for, for wedding parties in our day. Um, but it makes sense. It's a special role in a special ceremony. And so you're invited in a really special way. What is our role that we're invited into in this ceremony? This consummation of Jesus the groom and, and his bride, the church. Um, in answering that question, um, we're, we're answering, okay, what exactly are we being invited into here? Are we coming to this thing as a guest? Are we invited to this wedding as a guest to watch it all take place? No. We're invited to come to this ceremony as the bride. Um, This invitation is not just to come observe, uh, to be a witness to the marriage. Um, The invitation is to enter the marriage. It's an invitation to enter and to experience this love and this intimacy with Jesus, our groom, forever. Do you want that? If so, how do you get it? How do we get invited to this? Um, We get invited into this marriage because the groom has done everything necessary to secure our spot in the relationship. Uh, Remember Hosea. Uh, We were the bride who wanted nothing to do with our groom. We ran after other lovers. But Jesus is relentless in his love for us. 
This is really what the whole account of the Bible is about. It's God's relentless, constant, unending pursuit of his bride, the church. And he's been pursuing you for your whole life. He did everything for you to secure what is needed to be in this relationship. He died to pay the penalty that is due to you for your running away from him. Uh, For our chasing after other lovers. He, He cleansed us from that completely. He paid for it in full. And he lived in perfect righteousness. He lived perfectly faithfully in the midst of our unfaithfulness. He did so for us so that we are now clothed in his righteousness. We're now clothed in his purity, in his faithfulness. So what else do we need? We need to receive his love and we need to walk down the aisle to meet him, to be united to him. Um, You can hear that this is not an invitation uh, uh, to have a box checked or a line on your resume to sort of fill out the picture. Um, This is not an invitation into adding a a necessary burden uh, to your life in order to have some restraint in your life. This is an invitation into loving, intimate relationship with God himself. Erin and I have a friend in another state um, who uh, she made it well into adulthood and into her career being single and not marrying. And um, over the years, she would feel discouraged about this and um, of not being in a, in a relationship, of not being married. And she would occasionally go on dates and then she would uh, process those dates or potential relationships with, with Aaron and I and with, with others. And, um, and the advice that was given to her as she would kind of try to figure this thing out, walk through discouragement of, am I going to meet someone? Should I stay with this person or whatever? Should I keep going on dates with this guy? The advice she was given was, don't settle. Don't settle. And uh, not in the sense of, you know, have some impossibly high standard of the person you're going to marry that no one ever is ever going to love. Not in that sense, but no. Don't settle in the sense uh, of of, uh, wait until you find a man who is deeply committed to Jesus and it's evident in his life. Uh, and and when, when you fall in love with someone like that, then you're, then you're on to something. And thankfully, uh, in her wisdom, our friend listened to this advice. And, um, but for her, though, th- it was not without great risk for her to listen to this advice. Because um, what that meant was, if, if, if she had people in her ear saying, don't settle, and there's this potential person that she's been on a date with, and if for her to not settle means to end this potential relationship, where does she go back to? She goes back to square one. Back to being single again. Back to not knowing what the future will hold for her marriage and for her relationships. Um, Well, sure enough, uh, she didn't settle. And she ended up meeting a man who loved Jesus and loves her so well. And what do you think she says about her time of waiting and not settling? Of course she says it was worth it. Of course now she says that that's her advice to others who were in her similar situation. It was worth not settling. It was worth ending those other relationships, holding out for the one who's now her husband. Uh, Because of our sinful human nature, everything inside of us is going to scream at us to settle for lesser loves and lesser intimacies of this world, of things other than Jesus. Um, And these lesser loves scream at us to get our attention and to get our affection. They are quick to offer themselves to us with all kinds of false promises of being known and loved and accepted and fulfilled. And so what does looking at a passage like Revelation 19 do for us? It tells us not to settle. It invites us to say no to giving ourselves to those lesser loves 
But here's where, where this is different from the story about our friend. Um, we can actually know right now the better love that is on offer. That there's no risk of not finding something greater because the greater thing is Jesus. And he stands offering himself to you this morning. Don't settle for a lesser love. Give yourself to Jesus the groom who offers perfect love, perfect full intimacy to you right now and forever. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are so desperate to feel known, to feel seen, to feel fully loved. And we just confess that we look everywhere for that. We look on social media. We look in human relationships. We look online. We look through just about every created thing possible to try to find this sense of love and intimacy. And only you can provide it. Oh, how we're desperate to know that, to really believe it deep in our hearts, to feel it. Spirit, help us to feel loved by Jesus, our groom, deep into places of our soul that have never felt loved before. Would you grant us that gift this morning? And maybe there's no better place to experience this than at the table that we come to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.